Observing and sketching with Berta Beltran on episode 323 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everyone who likes going out under the stars. First, we have a Patreon supporter to thank. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, big thanks to Will. He's our newest Patreon supporter. Thanks, Will, and thank you to all of the Patreon supporters. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Will. Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate the Patreon support. It's really nice to be able to afford to do the show and afford to buy things like astronomy books, too. Berta Beltran is a visual observer from Edmonton, Alberta, where she sketches mostly from her backyard or from a dark cemetery site when time is available. Berta also has a PhD in particle physics and has worked at CERN and currently is working on a neutrino project off the coast of British Columbia. She also works as an outreach assistant at the University of Alberta. Berta sketches everything she sees through a telescope from the sun, moon, planets, and deep sky objects to comets. We have been having a knowledge exchange, her and I. She has been providing me some advice on sketching tools and techniques while bouncing off some telescope ideas as she pursued a new refractor, which she recently purchased. Welcome to the show and podcast, Berta. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. Quick shout out, you observed with uh, Alistair Ling and you guys kind of connected over this and uh, we recently had Alistair on and he was looking forward to hearing you as well. Yes, yes. Alistair is a great mentor. Uh, he has meant the world. He has made a difference for me in this hobby. So thank you very much. Yeah, to him. And you guys go observing in a cemetery, I think? Yeah. He So actually the club has a location uh, of, it's in a park, it's in a um, uh, provincial park near like one hour away from Edmonton called Blackfoot. But uh, the city lights are catching up with that location. So Alistair is moving farther and farther east from there. And the next location was this cemetery. So <laughs> it's funny because when he told me, oh, let's go observe. And I didn't know where it was. And he's like, yeah, we are going to go to a cemetery. We were already in the car. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> don't mind the shovel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, exactly. but that's great. It's a, it's a great location with yeah. respect, of course, to the people who are there. Yes. I hope you don't mind me quoting you. We're, we're having a conversation over email. You said something I, I liked this. You said, you know, I feel like all this thinking about gear takes away a little of the enjoyment of the hobby, at least for me. I know that for some others, thinking, reading, and testing new gear is part of the lore of the hobby, but not for me. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I really thought that was beautiful. Yes. So I guess it all came when, when I started in this hobby five years ago, I bought this little uh, Celestron uh, Nexstar 102 SLT, which is a refractor, four-inch refractor, a lot of, with a lot of chromatic aberration, but I didn't know that at, at the time, and a little go-to mount. Yeah. And with that, I did the Explore the Universe certificate for my backyard, and it took me about a year, and I was the happiest person because... I didn't know any better. I didn't know what the limitations of the telescope were. They just were looking me at the, showing me the night sky the way that I haven't seen it before. So I just love that. And so I enjoyed it so much, not knowing that it could get any better than that until, of course, you travel to a dark sky for the first time and then That's the city feels like nothing. <laughs> but, um, and then when you look through a better telescope too, then of course your telescope doesn't look as good. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> before you don't do that, then it's it, before you go to from nothing to having a telescope, it's just fantastic. So sometimes just not knowing is the best, I guess. In the Explore the Universe, that's the RASC, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. 
sort of entry observers program. How did you find that program as an introduction to the night sky? Yeah, so I think uh, as a, I, I used to work full-time as a researcher, but then uh, when my kids were little, I, I, I stopped doing that, and I have free time in my hands, so I thought, you know, I just want to rekindle this old hobby of mine, which is astronomy. There was a solar, uh, sorry, a lunar eclipse coming in January 2018. I bought this telescope, and then, of course, I look at the lunar eclipse, and then what's next? And, like, I just did some internet research and that program I guess I don't I don't even remember but it must have appeared and I thought okay it's like a scavenger hunt of the sky so let's just go for it as a I don't know what to look at other than the moon so let's just go for it and so I worked on it for a year and it it basically taught me how to find things I start hop to things to figure out the sky the constellations the faces of the moon so it's fantastic to get started yeah you're really a professionally trained astronomer, and your hobby is astronomy. I'm not an astronomer. I'm a particle physicist. A particle physicist. In, in my <laughs> mind, I, my apologies, I sort of lumped them all together. <laughs> but for, for us particle physicists, our observing actually happens here in Canada, two kilometers underground in yeah. Salvary, Ontario, in this snow lab observatory that I used to work. So we are actually not literal. We are looking at the sky, but from two kilometers underground. So, yes. <laughs> Do you find that having that background in particle physics, does that enhance your appreciation for what you're seeing under the night absolutely, sky? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I I actually, uh, thank you for asking, I, I kind of like a little bit everything about it. I... I I do outreach at the observatory at the university, and some people are more interested in the constellations background, the history of the constellations, the mythology. So I like to learn about that. Uh, I like to learn about that. But um, I also, the fact that I can understand an a, book, a book about astrophysics or read about a star and understand the processes that are happening inside are also um, enhanced for me the hobby of, of knowing and I just just yesterday, I was talking to another colleague from from the RASC here from Edmonton, just telling the story of um, this seventy-year-old um, guy who came to the observatory. He came from rural Alberta, and apparently he didn't have that much of a training uh, as a kid. Maybe he went to a rural school or something. So I was explaining to him, okay, this is Sirius. It's the brightest star in the sky. And then he points to Venus, and he says, "Well, but that's brighter." <laughs> And, yes, and I say, yes, but that's a planet. And he's like, what's the difference? <laughs> so <laughs> you have to explain everything, you know, from the beginning, because he didn't even know that our solar system had eight planets, right? He he just didn't even name the planets that we have or knew the difference between a star and a planet. So certainly that knowledge and the capability to enhance my knowledge by reading astrophysics and understanding the formulas um, Certainly for me, it's it's very interesting, yeah. And I like to, uh, I'm learning on my own about all, all these astrophysics courses that are offered here at the UFA. You mentioned knowing these sort of fundamental building blocks and sort of construction. Where did you go to school and, and what did you learn sort of in the early uh, education system? Yes, so I'm originally from Spain. Um, so I did the traditional school, high school in Spain. And then I went, uh, I knew from a, very early child I, that I wanted to do physics and I wanted to study the universe. And so I went to Zaragoza in Spain. It's another town where I study my undergrad. 
And then um, when my when I finished my undergrad, uh, that university didn't have a strong astrophysics department, but they had a very strong uh, particle physics department. And they had a lot of money from grants, so they had money to hire graduate students. So so I went there because in a way I was also learning about I'm I was learning about the the universe because uh, they were studying dark matter, which is also part of the cosmology of the building blocks of the universe. So, so that's, that's what I specialize. Even before that, how did you get first interested in astronomy? Were you, mm-hmm. was it something that your parents or family introduced you to, or was it something you just sort of stumbled upon in a, yeah. in a back alley at the local library? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's more like the second. My, my family have always, we are three siblings. They always were like, oh, you have to study is the I guess the old times, like we are, you have to study university, just, just study, just figure it out what you want to do, but study. And so for me, uh, even though my family, they're more of the arts, like my dad is a lawyer, they are always not, not so much into the sciences. Yes, I stumbled upon a, a, on a book in the library about the universe, like you say, and somehow it captivated me. And so since then, I knew that I wanted to be a scientist. And for me, in a school, since the very early days of school science was always my thing so uh so yeah it was kind of an easy (laughs) path from the beginning i knew that i wanted to study and since elementary it was always the sciences for me yeah i'm curious in our correspondence you mentioned having a couple young boys and are they interested in astronomy are they joining you at your sessions or are they something the saying something like you will you will think so, but not really. <laughs> the moment that I take my telescope out, they run away. Uh, <laughs> I, I have two nephews, uh, ages four and seven, in Regina, and then another set of nephews in Edmonton of the same age. And um, the the seven year olds are very interested for about fourteen seconds. You know, they'll <laughs> look through the telescope at the moon or the sun and be impressed but then kind of off to the next thing. So I can't hold them for very long. I, I don't yeah. know if your experience is similar, but <laughs> absolutely. And yeah. uh, because my kids are used to seeing already, you know, they, they complain that they have seen the sun too many times. They have seen the moon too many times. It just looks the same as always, mom. Why are you making me look? <laughs> so then, so then I have to say, because my nephews listen to the show, <laughs> I have to say that they are super keen. I have three nephews and when I was home, they recently took up astronomy during the pandemic. They they became very interested. I had taken a telescope down to, I'm from Nova Scotia out east, and I'd taken a telescope down there before the pandemic for another nephew who wasn't interested in astronomy. And they went and grabbed that telescope. And it was really cool because when I was home over the holidays, they were like swapping observing stories with me, just like, you know, Shane or or we might do burden. They were talking about be out, out observing when like the raccoon came up and stuff like that. Maybe they'll get interested later on. You hope so. They, they, they pretend to be interested when they have friends over and then they oh, want to yeah. show off their mom's telescope. But in they general, <laughs> when you started with visual observing, did you start with a telescope or binoculars and did you start just in 2018 or or did you have a look when you were much younger and just getting yeah. interested in astronomy? So seriously, I will say 2018 
Uh, before that, my parents, when I was a kid, they, they, I had a very tiny telescope similar to the ones that Shane has behind him right now, probably like a three inch refractor or something, but I didn't know any better. So I probably only look at the moon that I remember. And then in 2018, I, I bought my first telescope. And again, I only look at the moon to start with, but then I discovered Explore the Universe. And, uh, and I thought, oh, this is something that I could do. And then I started learning because until then I'd really, pretty much only knew the Big Dipper and Cassiopeia and, and that's that. So, so to learn my constellations. And then at that time, yes, I started with the next star for inch refractor and the binoculars. I would, I will, I will have both in tandem. So I will look at an object first with the binoculars to figure it out where it was in the sky. And then it will make my star hopping a little bit easier. Yeah. What size binoculars were they like an eight by four? No, at that time, uh, uh, one second, I just have them here. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Bert is sitting in her art studio for those sorry. that are listening. She's I got all kinds of they are, great stuff uh, behind her. Yes, they are 1042. Uh, oh, that's a nice size. <laughs> yeah, so this these were my, it's, I'm a, I like birding too. I like looking at birds. So this mm. is my birding binoculars that turn into, and then after, after this, I bought another pair that is, um, I think nine by 60 something, mm -hmm. I think. So they are a little bit more astronomy dedicated, but I started with my birding binoculars. So really people, you don't need a telescope. You just take the binoculars that you have at home and you can spend one year learning the night sky with that. You mentioned having the four inch achromatic telescope. What other telescopes have you owned before your most recent one? Uh, so that was my first one. That same year or the year after, I, I went to Spain to visit my family and I, wanna, I was going to spend a full month there during the summer. And so I thought, you know, it, here in Alberta, it's, uh, it's basically there is no darkness anymore in the, in the summer because yeah. we are at 50, 53 degrees latitude. But my hometown is at 42 degrees latitude. So I thought I should buy a telescope to have in there so that I can observe from there. Um, so eventually I just got a six inch dog the typical white sky, sky watcher things. And I, I just, I used it for a summer in there and I just loved it so much that when I came back uh, here, I bought the 10 inch collapsible version of that, which is a fantastic telescope. It gives wonderful views, but at the end of the day, I've, I've, I saw that I wasn't using it that much. Uh, my observing here in the city is basically any week or weekend day when the sky is clear, I just get out for one hour, one hour and a half, three quarters of an hour sometimes, you know, depending on how cold it is. And so just setting up for that, I, it felt like I just didn't feel like doing it. And so I didn't observe that much. And then for a year or so, because I just was lazy to, to bring the telescope. And then I just realized that I should just come back to my four inch because that one I can just grab it with pretty much one hand and set it up. Yeah. Uh, and... So I basically, right now, five years later, I found my system, which is from the city. I use my refractor, which I can just set it up in two minutes. It's not heavy. I just lift it, put it in the mount, and then I got it up. It's, it's just very simple. And even for 45 minutes of observing, it's worthwhile. Uh, and then I keep the 10 inch, which I still have and I still love. And I use it when I go to dark sites, that one. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that's and, a great way to to do it. The, the refractors are you just can't well, you know, depending on the size, I suppose, just their ease of use and you know, quick ability to set them up. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the things that really draws me to them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what size of refractor are are you using in the backyard? Right now I have uh, so um thanks to you guys who ignited my curiosity of uh, improving a little bit my refractor because certainly the chromatic aberration of mine, once you are aware of it, is very annoying. <laughs> uh, it's uh, I, I was looking, I was in the market uh, looking, and then just it just happened that uh, there was a state sale from uh, our members who passed away recently. And so they were offering a William Optics Fluorostar triplet, but it's not a heavy telescope, it's six kilograms. So mm-hmm. it's it's okay. It's the limit of what my mount and I can handle, mm-hmm. but but six I'm still okay with that. And so it's a William Optics Fluorostar triplet, 110 millimeters. So I think it's 4.3 inch or something like that. Yeah, so, that's a great size. Yeah, and so another thing that I personally, it took me a while to figure it out all of this, but from the city, at least for me. Of course, I started trying to do the Messier list and things like that, but it just doesn't work out. The, the views are so disappointing. From the city, I decided that I'm just going to do the moon, the planets, double stars. And recently, I started the carbon star list. Um, and so stars look so much better in a refractor. Even even my, my previous one, my achromatic one, uh, still shows the star much better to me than any other like these pinpoint diamonds in the sky. So I think it's 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 ease of comfort because it's lighter, but it's also the targets that I do in the city look better in a refractor. And then the deep sky objects, galaxies, nebulae, planetary nebulae, and so on, I can do use them with the 10 inch outside of the city. And um, they just complement each other <laughs> to me. Yeah, to, to your earlier comment that Chris mentioned about kind of ignorance is bliss. When I was almost exclusively observing with my Newtonian, I really enjoyed it and thought it was great. And it was. Uh, and then when Chris moved here and I started looking through his refractor and I noticed how sharp the stars were, <laughs> my <laughs> ignorance was gone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. that, that ignited the path that I'm on now of pretty much mm-hmm. just, you know, solely ex- observing through uh, refractors. At one point, Berta, you had some trouble with your four inch f 6.5 hitting the tripod i really liked this question not because you're having trouble with your refractor but <laughs> yeah, it it is a common problem with the with the refractors because the tubes are relatively long and then of course the tripod legs splay out how did you go about solving this problem uh yes so uh first of all um uh, the telescope that I was using, the achromatic one, it comes basically with the dovetail screwed to it. So it's not even, it doesn't have rings. It just have the dovetail screwed to the telescope. So it actually ends up being closer to the mount. And so as you guys suggested, uh, I tried to look first of all for a peer, uh, but it has to be shipped from the UK. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try first for the other option, which is keeping my telescope a little bit more separated from the mount. Uh, by putting uh, observing ring like rings and then putting a dovetail, and um, that kind of help a lot. Uh, I think there is still probably some areas on the sky that I mean, still couldn't look, but because the dovetail was actually screwed to the telescope, I couldn't rotate the telescope. Mm. But once you have once you have the telescope in rings, you can 
do a little bit of acrobatics with the mount and uh, somehow also rotate the telescope so the focuser will be in a different position. And so I guess it was a little bit of, uh, yes, thank you for you guys, this, to suggest the suggestion of separating the telescope from the mount a little bit through the dovetail or even putting spacers between the rings and the dovetail, uh, which I didn't have to do, but there is also another option to, to make it even better. And also learning how to use my mount and how to basically rotate the telescope inside the rings um, so that the focuser will be out of the way. Although my new William Optics that I'm still loving has a rot I can rotate the focuser on its own. So, nice. so that even makes it easier. <laughs> You've got the William Optics on your, it's like a CG4 or a yes. Celestron Omni. It, it is, it is totally, it is exactly a CG4 Celestron Omni. Again, I wanted a mount that was sturdy uh, because the one thing that I also hated, and that was one of the things that I hated pretty, pretty early from my next studies that, and I think Shane has complained about that too. When you touch the telescope, it just shakes mm -hmm. and that, that will drive me nuts, especially because even focusing the telescope will start shaking and then you cannot focus because the image is moving and something as sharp as a planet, you need to be very careful when you're focusing. And I just couldn't do it. So I wanted a mount that would be heavy and will hold my telescope without any shaking. And so the CG4 was kind of the next step from the one that came with the, the next star. And I'm still loving that mount. Uh, and I don't have motor drive to it. I'm just driving it by hand with the knobs. Uh, I could buy the motor drive. It's just $100. It's not that expensive. And they have it here in the store in All Star Telescope, yeah. our local place. But uh, but I, I, so far, I don't feel the need. I'm okay just turning the knob. And so so I'm okay with it. Uh, eventually, maybe I will put the motor drive, but then I have to have a battery and I have to worry about it. And then you go for your quarter of an hour or three quarters of an hour of serving and you spend half of it fixing the mount because it's not moving. And I just don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> I, I think that's the right approach, or at least that's how I would approach it because, <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse than you, you're excited to observe, you have, you know, you make that big effort and then to have, uh, you know, a battery die or something like that is frustrating. <laughs> For me, it's just, I set up in five minutes and I am observing. I don't have to carry batteries. I don't have to handle anything. You mentioned completing the RASC's Explore the Universe program. Are there any other observing certificates that uh, you're currently working on, Berta? <laughs> yes, I'm working pretty much on every one of them <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yes, of course, after I finished Explore the Universe, I thought, okay, I'm going to get the Messier going, the Messier one going. And then that's when I basically was the big, big wall in the hobby for me because I, I couldn't see a galaxy from the city. And of course, I didn't know that until you actually look at them and you're like, whoa, this is not what I'm expecting. And then you go to a dark sky, thanks to Alistair again, who is the first one who, who helped me get acquitted to what you can see from a dark sky. And uh, and then you realize, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I cannot do this from the city. Um, so then I eventually, with a lot of back and forth, I think I settle on, again, continuing the Messier program, but only when I can go out to a dark sky. And then uh, from the city, I'm doing the double star uh, one. I'm doing the explore the moon, which I'm almost almost finished. And then in tandem, I'm actually started the Isabel Williamson lunar program, which I may never finish. So it's, it's not 
it's not for the it's not for the pin. I'm okay with just not finishing. It's just such a wonderful booklet. I don't know if you the description for every crater and the information of the lunar geology and the age of the formation of the moon. It, it's just such a wonderful program. So I I really like just okay. I'm just gonna look at the moon. What's up? Uh, what is I use this dial a moon webpage from NASA. Okay. Um, which shows you the moon right now. And then you can see, okay, these are the craters that I can observe. So I go to the Isabel Williamson, I look the map in there, and then I go out and I just do my reading and sketching at the same time as I as I look at this at those objects. So I use it more as a sky tour of the of the moon. There's a lot to observe on that list, particularly if you get into the uh, the challenge uh, observations on there. There, mm-hmm. it, it, it would take somebody quite a while to get through it all. Mm-hmm. That's for sure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's almost like a lifetime, and that's okay because I I know I'm not in a rush to finish it. I may never finish it. The other ones I would like to finish them. The Isabel Williamson, I just take it as a this is a beautiful guide to the moon, so mm-hmm. just follow it. Do you have a favorite type of object or in in general that you enjoy observing most, or is it really just the the buffet of all these different targets and lists that you're really enjoying? Um, Well, a little bit, you know, just by accident, I I observe the sun because I work at the University Observatory and we do solar observing there. And there is an H-alpha telescope and a telescope with a white light filter. And so because I guide the public observing during that time, I started to look at the sun more and more, which in principle, it, it was not something that was calling me. But the more you look at the sun, it is really, it's really so much fun, at least for me, because it's always different. And then you learn a lot about what's going underneath and the physics of the sun and the plasma. And uh, I think mean, it, it's just fantastic. So I wouldn't think of myself as saying this, but I do enjoy the sun also because you can look at it during the day. <laughs> and so I don't need to, you know, stretch my nights or anything. It's just, uh, um, so I like looking at it. and uh, I, I like sketching it uh, very much. The moon is also really beautiful. And you can also look at it during the day and sketch it in the daylight. So that's, that's okay. Uh, I do like galaxies. But unfortunately, I don't go to a dark sky often enough to look at galaxies. So, so from the physics and the astrophysics point of view, and the or of looking at something that is so far away and contains so many stars, and I like galaxies. I can certainly uh, relate to you know my joy of observing the sun as well uh, for the reasons you said, Berta. You know, it's <laughs> it's nice that it's during the day, and if you have the opportunity to view it through hydrogen alpha. There's just so much detail and contrast there. And as you yeah. mentioned, it's so dynamic. Not only will it change from you know morning to afternoon, but certainly day over day, it's just it's always a new site, which is uh, very intriguing. Yeah, I certainly called other people. I have a little Coronado PST. Mm. Uh, that's my telescope. And then at the university, we have uh, an 80 millimeters uh, land, double stack. Yeah, so I, I'm so fortunate because, yes, at least once per week, I will look through the land if it's the sky is clear. And um, and then when I have the opportunity, I set my, cor- my coronado in my backyard. And so, yes, yes, the sun is the sun through H-alpha, but even through white light, you know, the sun spots, if you look at them through several days in a row, you see them separating or changing shape. And you can imagine all the energy and movement that is going underneath. And it's just, it's just pretty cool. 
Mm-hmm. And and Berta, I'm not sure if you've had the same experience, but I find with hydrogen alpha, um, the difference between the aperture of your PST, which is I think around 35 or 40 millimeters, 40, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 40. Uh, the difference between a 40 millimeter H alpha and an 80 millimeter H alpha isn't as large as most people might think. It, they're actually very, they're, yeah. they're they're more similar than they are different. And the reason I just want to mention that is we've received a few emails recently about different apertures for H alpha observing. My comment is always don't worry so much about the aperture, like 40 millimeters will give you a mm-hmm. lifetime of enjoyment. My experience has been with a 35 millimeter Lunt and it's just incredible what you can see. Mm-hmm. You've been mentioning too, uh, just in the email correspondence, Berta, and, and earlier in the podcast here about observing carbon stars. And that's something I've not done enough, but I'm very interested in. Um, is there any carbon star lists or programs that you're currently working on or what, what's your source to, to find yes. these things? So first of all, I became acquitted to Carbon Stars through Luca Vancella, one of the members of the RASC uh, here in Edmonton, who himself have completed uh, 151 observing lists that he himself created. And I think he gave us a little presentation or a little summary. I don't remember, or maybe he sent an email, I don't remember. But I thought, oh, this is really cool because I do enjoy color. I like looking at double stars when they have different, like you see the the blue and the yellow. And again, the refractors for that are just fantastic. You see the colors. It's just really beautiful. And so carbon stars, I've observed, you know, not many, like maybe 10 of them. And only really one of them was truly red. The other Mm -hmm. ones are more like Beetlejuice red, like orange. So it's, it's fine, but it's not seen out of the ordinary uh, because my understanding is that they are variable stars. So they are only really red when they are at the minimum. Um, and then as they brighten a little bit, they are a little bit less red and more orange. That's my understanding, but I, I may got, I may have this wrong. So please check this out. Once I stumbled one that was really red. And then it's, it's almost like, you know, the stars always have like these spikes of light coming out of them, you know, even in the mm-hmm. refractor. But that one was so red that it just was almost like a planet. It's just a disk of red. Like, wow. obviously, it's a faraway star, so it's not a disc, but it just look, you know, it's not bright. It doesn't shine. It's just red. It was really, I don't know if that makes sense, but it mm-hmm. was really, mm-hmm. really deep, deep uh, red. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, the, the first one that I've observed uh, was in Cassiopeia. I couldn't believe it. Uh, like, I thought, oh, this might be difficult to find one lone star in a somewhat star-rich field. Uh, so did my star hopping. And then just boom, you know, this red ruby star was right there. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. believe uh, just how rich it was in color. Similar to you, I love double stars for the color because a lot of the stuff that we look at through a telescope is monotone, right? Or Mm -hmm. or just monochrome, I should say. It it really doesn't have color. So when you can tease out some color in stars, it's absolutely beautiful. I really enjoy that too. Yes. And I'll say for the the observing programs that you mentioned, so... Because I have a small telescope, I decided to go first for the ones that appear in the pocket sky atlas, because mm-hmm. I assume those are the brightest uh, carbon stars. To my understanding, there is a list of 60 of them. Uh, they appear with a little C between brackets in the, in the sky. And they are in the internet, you can find uh, lists of them, like an Excel list with all of them, because the pocket sky atlas doesn't actually have a list. I think the second version has it, but not the first one that I have. The second edition may have that list, but I mine doesn't have it. 
and so you can download it in the internet. And so I'm basically trying to find these 60 of them. And then the Astronomy League in the US has a carbon star program with 100 of them. And then the Royal Astronomical Society Handbook has another list with several of them. And I think that's what Luca Vancella used to get his 151, because not all of them are in all the lists. So you can get them, but some of them are quite dim. So I may need, uh, you know, a bigger telescope. So with my four-inch refractor, I think the the Poker Sky Atlas is the place to start. I think uh, mm-hmm. that's my... <laughs> and I, I think these lists are available on Sky Safari, if I'm not mistaken, if if somebody has Sky Safari. Uh, I, I haven't, I personally haven't found the Pocket Sky Atlas list in a Sky Safari format. Uh, I know you can get it in Excel format and there mm. may be a way to transform in it. I don't know. There may be some application because to move it to this astronomy open standard that they use in the sky list. But what I'm doing is just typing them by hand. Mm. Uh, Luca Bancella did publish his 151 stars list in a sky safari sky list format. He has a web page. So if you Google Luca Bancella carbon star, you will get to that. Luca did email us as well. He sent us some further details. I'd like to get get it out to folks. I was almost hoping maybe we could get Luca on the show at some point. So I I did put the ask to him sort of we'll we'll see if he's able to because he's combined what can be seen from north of uh 20 degrees latitude because he he observes at a couple spots in Edmonton and and somewhere uh, at 20 degrees north. So he's combined the 55 stars that you can see from that latitude from the pocket atlas, the 48 stars, I think, that are in the RESC Observer's Handbook, and the selection from the Astronomical League. And then he's done some editing. I think they're like the most visible ones. It's like 150, like you were saying. I think there's like 15 or 20 that are that are fairly faint. It would be nice to get him on and then have him walk us through his journey and seeing all that because there's been several listeners that wrote in who are interested in all those programs but I think he's the only one who wrote us and said that they had they had sort of done the work and made the observations and brought them all together. First carbon star I really took note of. I I hunted down a few, but like you, I noticed that most of them were more like Betelgeuse. And then one night I was observing down in Lepus and I saw that R. Leporis. Have you seen that one? That star was super red. And it surprised me because I've observed that field numerous times never really noticed a red star. And then when I looked it up, I understood that because of the variability and depending on how bright or faint it was, that is what determined how red it was and that it was actually fainter than when I had previously observed the field. And it was because it was fainter, I guess, that that sort of concentrates the light or something. And it made it like you said, looked like this sort of burning ember. It was super red, like a little drop of blood in the sky, which mm-hmm. is a very strange thing to see when you're looking through the telescope because like Shane said, everything's usually monochrome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. And that's why it's kind of something that I can see from the city with my refractor. And it's just there. Once you get a good one, they are really pretty. Berta, thank you so much for your advice to me. I know uh, you had written, we were, we were talking about maybe how to solve some of the problems you were having with the scope hitting the tripod. And I enjoyed our discussion when you were selecting your next telescope. That's always fun. 
but you were also providing me with some pretty decent advice, particularly about I was looking for a better sketching uh, book or not a book, but a what do you call it? The container that the pencils go in. Mm-hmm. Sketching case. Yeah. Yeah. Like okay. a little sketching case. Mm-hmm. And then you recommend it. It's called the Etcher. Is that what it's Etcher. called? Yeah. Etcher is the company. Yes. The Etcher field case. And that is a beautiful case. I don't have mine. It's out at my dark sky site. I was out mm-hmm. yesterday with it. Mm-hmm. That is a beautiful little case that you can fit so many different types of pencils into. And what I like is I can keep my graphite pencils and my white pencils separate. And that's just a, yes. a really great little case. There it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's built like a tank. Yeah. I love it. You can drop it in the snow. You can drop it in the mud. It has a little rubber band for every pe- for every pencil. So they just don't fly off. And then, yeah, because, you know, you are using it at night in normally a place that is not very convenient. <laughs> so, so, you know, things fall off. But, but because everything is nicely tight in there, uh, you know, it's just I every time that I use a pencil, I just put it back and I know it's not going to fall from it. And uh, it also allows you to organize everything, which is nice because when you are in the dark, you don't see the colors that well. So, you know, my blue pencil is in here and I don't see it blue, but I know it's my blue pencil because it's in there. <laughs> not as many people are into sketching these days. Most folks are into observing and or imaging if they if they want to capture what they're seeing under the night sky. So how did you get into astronomical sketching and, and drawing? Uh, so again, I, I guess I have to thank the rats for that because when I started the Explore the Universe program, uh, they encourage the sketching and they have the, the forms to fill up, have little sketching circles. So even though, like you say, it's not very popular, it's very much encouraged. And so I went down a little bit the rabbit hole of reading about it because I do, I have no art training I've never done art until I was 40, but I like a little bit of a more of a like documenting my life. So drawings and I like to, you know, nature journal during the day and things like that. So um, so I'm drawn to to recording my observations through sketching because it allows me to pay attention. Uh, like Howard said, when you have him, you know, the, his his podcast this week was really good. It's just paying attention to things. So then it just because the, the forms have this sketching, I started sketching my themes and I really, really enjoyed it. I think it, it, you know, as opposed to, you know, just looking at something for five minutes and moving on to the next object, it, you know, I may see only two, three, two things per night, but that's okay. I just, I just take my time to stop, start hope to then and then to, to actually sketch then. So it brings a lot of richness to the observation for me. So yeah, that's how I started. I started with pencil and paper, and then I've tried different techniques. And and so while maybe other people are Googling gear and just searching for sketching techniques and <laughs> trying to improve my sketching from home and do practice at home. And so, so yeah, because once you go out there in the dark, it's just so different. Oh, and yeah. Your hands are cold and everything is falling. And just, you know, just using my legs as my table and everything falls off. And so... Yeah, you have to be prepared. I've been I've been living that reality this week. I've been trying to learn the I don't have a pen here, but that uh, what do you call it? The overhand technique where you grab the pencil like I can use a screwdriver as my <laughs> pencil. Here we go. But where you kind of grab it like this sort of. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. To, to and then you're yes. able, yeah, you're yes. able to draw because I've been having trouble drawing the rings of Saturn. So I was practicing mm-hmm. drawing the rings of Saturn in preparation mm-hmm. now. I don't know why. I just don't want to use the um, 
Saul Robbins has put out a beautiful Saturn template for this apparition, but I'm like, I really just want to draw the whole thing myself. And it's so hard to do. It is, but you know, for me again, and maybe again, that's the bliss of not being, being ignorant and not being good. I'm not good at art. So I know my sketches are not going to turn like some of the things that you see online and that's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be like that. It's for me to observe. It's not, you know, beautiful or perfect or, you know, uh, but that's fine. You know, it's just, and you know, like Howard was saying last week, you think you're creating a masterpiece. And then the next day when you look at it, it's just as much as all over the place that you don't see them in the dark. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's never, and I don't correct my things uh, at home. I just leave it the way it is. So it's always, yes. It's just uh, it's because I don't have time and because it's not my purpose to create something beautiful. So it's it's really a little bit of a mess, but it's more about the observation. Yeah. Well, I, I have enjoyed your sketches quite a bit that you've posted uh, online as as well as sent to us, and they're they're they are. I think they're very beautiful. I Thank in you. fact, <laughs> one of my first questions was, "What is your art background?" But you've already <laughs> answered that, saying that you don't have one, which kind of surprises me because. Your, your sketches are quite beautiful. And the other thing that you do, this really caught my attention, is sketching in color because having tried this and failed miserably, that is really difficult to do at night because, of course, like you were saying with your blue pencil in the Etcher case, <laughs> you have to know where that blue pencil is because you can't see that blue at night. So how are you sketching color at the eyepiece? Uh, again, um most of it is just for my, the color that I've done is again, carbon stars or the double stars. So it's just blue or yellow or Jupiter, which is basically kind of like an orange or a red. So I don't have that many colors in, I, I really only have the colors that I need, which I think it amounts to five and and the white for the monochrome yeah. <laughs> painting. So, so then I basically know where they are and, uh, and you kind of put them a little bit blindly because, like you say, you look at it the next day and they, oh, that's not exactly what I saw in, in my day. And that's that's the part that annoys me more. Not so much that maybe it doesn't look good or is as much is that sometimes it really doesn't look like the things that I remember seeing. Um, sometimes my sketches are more bright than what I thought uh, I saw. So sometimes mm-hmm. I do erase a little bit to, to dim them down. Yeah. Just again, I just use like I think I have a blue and kind of a gold color for the for the double stars, and then I have a red for the carbon stars, and then I have um, some colors for Jupiter, and that's all that I do. And then I know where they are, and I kind of kind of put them in there a little bit blindly because, as I say, the next day sometimes they don't look exactly what you thought. And for the sun, it's different. For the sun, I I see it right. That's the beauty of the sun. So the sun, my sun sketches are the ones that are a little bit more. I try to be a little bit more colorful, but I have, I have, um, you know. Oh wow! Look at this. I'm gonna. <laughs> so, this is gonna be a screen capture we use for something. <laughs> yes. So so anyway, for the for the sun, I do have an orange that I use for the sun, and then kind of like a gray that I use for the filaments, and then a white pencil for the brighter areas. So I I do have again four colors that I use, and it's always the same. So then uh, you just put them, yeah. I'm not a sketcher, but if if I ever was to get into it, it would be for solar observing because mm-hmm. I find like for night sky, um, I just prefer my words to describe my mm-hmm. observation and to log it. 
but it's really hard to visually describe an observation of the sun because there is so much going on there every single day. It makes a lot of sense to me to sketch that as mm-hmm. a record of the mm-hmm. observation. Yeah. And the sun is so much easier because again, during the day, you actually see what you are doing. I try to do something between artistic and scientific, not so much artistic because, but again, I have always my my rules, then I put, for example, the names of the, the sunspots that I saw. So I always like to put the, the numbers after that. And so my sunspots somehow always end up being bigger than what you see in reality. <laughs> so that's, I know, it's a bias that my brain has. It's just a little bit of just a recording, again, to help you observe. Because mm-hmm. the sun, like you said, there is so much stuff that if you don't act, take the time to sketch it, you miss half of the filaments that are in there or Absolutely. something like that. Yeah. yeah. How long does it take you to create a, a, a sketch of the uh, sun? So for the sun, for example, it's about 20 minutes per, like one, uh, 15, 20 minutes, depending on lately a little bit more because the sun is so much active, right? Mm-hmm. But like uh, the H alpha will be around maybe 15, 20 minutes and the white light will be maybe a little bit less. But again, lately a little bit more because the sun spots are so many and there are so many beautiful areas in there. Mm-hmm. So. 15, 20 minutes, I would say, yes, per sketch. I think solar sketching is a great entry. Um, I was going to say like a gateway drug to astronomical <laughs> sketching. Yes, yes. Because that's, in in essence, that's how I learned to astronomical sketch. I had been shown by a few people. And then one day I was out observing with my friend Kathleen. And the next day when I woke up, I was like making my breakfast and she was over there observing through her 10 inch telescope, the sun and, and doing a sketch. And so I walked over and she is an artist. Like mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. that's her trained mm-hmm. profession. Mm-hmm. I walked over and I said, Oh, Kathleen, this is a beautiful sketch. Can you show me a little bit more about sketching? And so she's of course thrilled because she's even taught art. And very quickly was just showing me how to do it. And then I could really see like, how is she holding the pencil? How is she holding the sketchbook? And how quickly, this is the thing that always impressed me with people is, again, like, that's a beautiful sketch that you've done to think that that only took around 20 minutes or so, give or take a few minutes to create just blew me away. I figured people must be drawing for like hours at the eyepiece. And she was like, no, no, it's just like this and showing me all the little techniques. And once I saw that, then I could really start to sketch on my own. She's like, okay, now you try kind of thing. And then I did a sketch of the sun and I was like, oh, wow. Like you could even see that mine bears a striking resemblance to yours (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah. And the sun in white light is easy because you just need a black pencil for the umbra, a little bit of a gray pencil for the penumbra that you kind of wiggle around yeah and then i have a yellow pencil to to sketch the limb of the sun to to shadow a little bit the limb which is a little bit more yellow can you d- discuss briefly your you're doing some of the white on black sketching the mellish technique mm-hmm. is called by some can you tell us a little bit about your white on black technique my you use? process yes so what i use again i haven't actually done that much research on this. So I just started uh, because I thought it would be looking more like reality. And also because the black paper doesn't remove my um, night observ- night um, adaptation in my eyes so much as the white paper. So when you have a light shining on white paper, it kind of reflects off your eyes and, and takes a little bit of the dark adaptation. Whereas if you have dark paper, um, it doesn't do that so much. 
I sketch on black paper, I still keep my dark adaptation. And then when I started, I just have three basically tools. So I use uh, white gel pen. It's not a pencil, it's a pen that kind of has white ink. It's kind of an acrylic ink. Uh, it feels a little bit different than a normal pen, but you get used to it. Yeah. It's called Jelly Roll. Um, and so with that, I basically write my text. Then I use a similar, I just have kind of like a white, I think it's white charcoal pencil. That's what I use to make a smudge on a paper. And with the blending stamp, I pick up that smudge and kind of I make the smudges of galaxies or planetary nebula or something. So in a way, it's very similar to what you do with pencil, where you basically make a smudge and then use the blending stamp to to put it around. And that's for, for kind of smudges. But just for stars or star clusters, I continue using the, the jelly pen, the white. I think my stars look a little bit better and more bright that way than just a white pencil. Like I also have a white pencil. I use for the stars, I use the jelly pen. And the good thing of the jelly pen is that I can put a star and then I can go with a color pencil on top and give it color. That's what caught my eye with your technique <laughs> is one, that your white stars appeared brighter. They actually mm -hmm. look brighter in the sketches, not mm -hmm. because they're typically when we're making the representation of a brighter star, we're making the larger circle. But with the jelly pen, I was wondering how the heck are you getting your stars to kind of just look intrinsically brighter, not by yeah. simply making yeah. them larger circles? Yes, yes. So this jelly pen is the is the 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 answer to that. If I use a white pencil, they don't look as bright. And right. then I cannot, or if I use a color pencil, it will just look even dimmer. But if I use the jelly pencil, they kind of stand out out of the page a lot. And then on top of that, you can actually paint with a color pencil and then the star will look blue. <laughs> and I hadn't seen that before too. So when I first saw your sketches like that, I thought you were taking them into software and manipulating them afterwards, but you weren't. No, so this is, for example, as, uh, I don't know if it's going to come very well, but uh, that's what I did. And that was kind of by by chance that I discovered that. I just put the jelly pencil and I was like, oh, but that was a little bit yellow. So I tried to paint it yellow on top and then I realized that it just takes it. The yellow yeah. looks still yellow, but it looks very bright. So so I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that was a neat technique. At a future point in time, and like I said, I'm just kind of getting set up to shoot some video. It would be really cool if if we could shoot a video of that somehow, that would be mm -hmm. really, really neat to to do. But mm -hmm. I'm starting to go down a rabbit hole. And we only have a couple <laughs> minutes left. But I just want to say again, thank you so much for your advice to me and for answering very patiently my questions to you over email when it when it came to the sketching, because for me, I'm I'm just learning, really. I've been doing yeah. it for several years, but I find learning from other people how to sketch has been a really great experience because as somebody who has, I, I have no artistic experience or, and I'm not really very artistic at all, but to be able to learn how to do that and then show it to people that don't know much about astronomy, but they can recognize that I've made an astronomical drawing is, is like a sense of pride. <laughs> yes. And, uh, even though they, they don't look as good, for example, as if I compare them with Eric Cloud's sketches or anything like that. Uh, when people see them, they say, oh, that's so cool. And I wish I could do that. And, uh, you know, what can I, what ha do I have to do to do this? So so it it brings, astrophotography is wonderful, but it does take a lot of 
time and learning. And, you know, it's just funny because the learning curve to astrophotography, I would say, is actually worse than the learning curve to actually sketch. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but people would just prefer to do that. Uh, but sometimes the sketching is just simple and cheaper, and then it takes a lot of enjoyment. It, it, it adds a lot of enjoyment to the hobby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also find that the astronomical sketching is much less expensive than astrophotography. Mm -hmm. I bought a pack of the world's most expensive pencils and custom sharpener last month. And the pencils were $4.95 each American. So mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. this is the most expensive pencil that you can get. It's still uh, less than a, a drink at a pub in Boston. Yes, so. yes. yeah, no, for sure. It's, uh, to me, it's, it's very cheap for all the enjoyment that it brings to the IPs, for sure. Yeah. Well, Berta, yeah. do you have any final thoughts to share with listeners? No, just again, thank you both for all the work that you do and for making our weeks a little bit happier with your podcasts. So well, all you. in order, thank you. Yes. Do you have anything to add, Shane? Yeah, thank you, Berta. Um, great meeting you. Really enjoyed the discussion today. This summer, I'll be up in Edmonton, and I might reach out to Alistair if things work out. So maybe the three of us can connect on, a, oh, on an observing be, session. Yeah. Fantastic. I will be away from July, but I will be in July, but I will be here the rest of the time. So hopefully, hopefully we can meet. Yeah, yes. that would be great. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on today, Berta. We really appreciate it. it was It was a pleasure getting to speak with you. We communicated so much over email. I, I really was feeling like we knew getting to know each other pretty good as fellow observers. And mm -hmm. again, thanks again for your advice to me. And I look forward to maybe having more conversations about sketching and, and to see your future work. For sure. For sure. Dear listeners, please subscribe and do us the favor of sharing the podcast with other stargazers. You know, we'd appreciate it as the more we grow, the better the show becomes. Thanks for listening. And you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.